Well, I'm excited to be here to get to, to speak with you and worship with you this morning. I'm the youth pastor at Christ Community Covenant Church, Four C's, just up the road on 82nd and Sims. So uh, hang out with Justin a lot. Uh, we do a lot of things together, is getting together for retreats or weekly meetings or going out to lunch. Um, so we're, we're good friends. So I'm excited to be able to, to have a chance to share with you some things that, that have been on my heart that God's been doing in my life uh, for quite a while. See, I grew up in Vancouver, Washington, which is just north of Portland, Oregon, which you know how it rained most of the afternoon yesterday? That's what it does every day, all day there. So when I moved out to Colorado, I actually had to buy a pair of sunglasses because you don't need them in Oregon. Um, So I grew up there, and uh, I grew up in a church of about this size, um, youth group about similar size, just a really great intimate uh, congregation where, where everyone was like family. Um, whenever I go back, it's like I have all these extended aunts and uncles and people that want to mother me uh, back there, and it's just, it's great. And when I was a sophomore in high school, I, I had to do a career research project. And I was sitting there and I was debating, do I do my research project on um, becoming a lawyer, because at that time I was in this kind of legal magnet program, or do I do it on becoming a pastor? Because that sounded interesting to me. And I'm sitting next to one of my friends, Corey, um, in the class, and he goes, well, you might as well just do it on being a pastor since that's what you're going to be someday. And, uh, well, apparently that was prophecy because I, I, I ended up on that road. I did the report and, and have kind of pursued that ever since. Uh, I, I graduated from George Fox University, which is a, a Quaker school down in Newburgh, Oregon. Spent four years there. Worked at a covenant church there for a few years as their middle school director uh, and, and upon leaving, when I, when I left that church to, to come out here, because God called me to get married to a girl in Colorado, um, when I left, they asked me to preach on something that we had been talking about. We had been talking about this idea of a church that is family-based, a church that's, that's intergenerational, where, where all generations are not only present, but participating in, in the worship and the deepening of our faith. And so my senior pastor asked me to preach on the Shema. And I said, well, I don't speak Greek. And he goes, it's Hebrew. I don't speak that either. And so he, he, he said, it's in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Look it up. And, and I read, and it says, you know, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and strength. And I said, so Jesus didn't say that first? And, uh, and so I got to preach on it. And, and it became this, this passage in my life that began to define how I do youth ministry, how I live my life, how I interact with the church as a whole, uh, because I really believe that this command that Moses gives the Israelites thousands of years before Christ really sets us up for what faith is supposed to be like. And so I'm excited. The last couple of years, I've spent a lot of time doing research and uh, writing huge papers on the subject because it just excites me. Uh, and I'm excited to get to present all of this to you. When I was talking to Guy about what to talk about, uh, I said, well, there's a couple things I could do. And this, this one thing is to talk about this concept of sticky faith, you know, keeping the faith of our students alive and well after they graduate from our programs. And as I began to talk about the dynamics of, of doing it as, as a church family, as partnering together, he goes, man, that's our church. They'd be so excited to get to hear about that. So I'm excited to come and, and share with you and, and just encourage you in, in all the things that you're doing. From what I know from Justin and from what I've talked to Guy, you guys do some awesome things with your kids. Uh, with your youth, with, with, with your faith in growing this church. And, and so I'm excited to get to uh, share that and encourage, encourage you with, with the findings and the research that I've done. Um, 
So I hope you'll endure it too. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to come and to preach to your congregation at Applewood. Lord, I pray that your words um, would be in my heart and, and uh, speak out of my mouth today so that they can hear your message, your encouragement to them. Praise these things in your holy name. Amen. So that's a little bit about me, but I want to know a couple things about you before I get started. So I'm going to ask you a couple questions and go ahead and shout out. You don't have to raise your hand or anything. Um, but what do you love about this church, Applewood Covenant? What do you love about it? It's family, the people. What else? It's a good size. The worship team. The band, yeah. All ages, yes, it's good. What was that? An outward focus, yes. Learning something every week. God is here, amen. You, you do have a crazy youth pastor. Good. Did you have one? Oh yeah, someday we'll be in heaven, absolutely. That'll be great. Those, those are great things. I'm glad, I'm glad you have so many things that you, that you love about this church. Um, those are all great things. What about Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? And maybe a word. Savior. Son of God. Friend. Savior. Lord. Protector. Redeemer. Comforter. Living waters, purpose, guide, companion, ever faithful. We could go on, right? 10,000 different ways to praise um, who Jesus is, what God is doing in this church. Uh, I'm so excited that you recognize this. Remember those things. They're going to come back up a little later, and they're really important to what we're going to talk about today. But if you have your Bibles with you, uh, go ahead and open up to Deuteronomy chapter 6, and we're going to read um, these verses together one more time so we know where we're coming from. And I'll be reading from the NIV, so if you have a different version, I apologize about that. So Deuteronomy, I learned when I read it for the first time. What? No. Thanks, though. Uh, Deuteronomy is, is something I learned is, is, is more of a summary of the first four books. And so this follows after Moses gives the Ten Commandments. Typically we read the Ten Commandments in Exodus, but in Deuteronomy uh, he, he kind of repeats himself as he's kind of given this summary of all the law. And in Deuteronomy chapter 6 follows after that. It's kind of the, here are all these things that you have to do so that. It kind of gives the reason, the why behind um, the, all the commands. And so Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Read along with me, please. These are the commands, decrees, and the laws of the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy a long life. Hear, Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you, and that you may incre increase greatly in a land flowing of milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Hear, O Israel, 
The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give to you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them to your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. So this is the passage that I was given to preach on as I left my last church to come out here to Colorado. And, it, and like I said before, it's specifically in my area of youth ministry, it's become kind of the passage that I think about whenever I consider what I'm doing. I believe it points us into the right direction. I believe it, it, it gets us to a question that we're all asking right now in youth ministry. And that's, why are they leaving? We, we've noticed that youth are leaving churches at an alarming rate after high school. They graduate our programs and seemingly graduate their faith. And they go on to college and do all sorts of things. And, and we have this lack of this 20-something, this college-age group, this gap in so many of our churches because it would seem that between 40 and 50% of young people leave their faith after leaving high school. And those are some studies that have recently been conducted. The number seems to be even larger in what we typically call successful youth ministries. And if you were to define success in the way these research uh, people have done it, it would be a large number of youth program, really fun, exciting, kind of the program that you don't have to fight with your kids to go to. Those churches have an even higher dropout rate when it comes to faith because when kids graduate from programs that are all about fun, all about large numbers, and get into church, it's boring. They don't have the crazy games, the all-nighters, the retreats, you know, the, the messages that are tailored specifically to them that probably border more on, on humor and exciting tricks than, than the Bible actually is. And perhaps worst of all, they no longer have adults standing beside them, teaching them about the faith. So they're bored and they're lonely. Why would they go? Perhaps it's time for us to define normal in a different way, to define success in a different way, because I'm not content with half of our young people leaving their faith after they leave our churches, and I know you're not either. And I think that if we, if we really stop and think about it, yes, it's hard to fight with your students about going to church. It's hard to fight with your kids about things of their faith. But is there anything more important in your life worth fighting for? And so today we're going to define this new normal, this new success, based off this passage in Deuteronomy and what Moses gave to the Israelites thousands of years ago. If you have your Bibles open, we're going to continue to kind of walk through this passage a little bit, starting with verse 2. Moses gives them the so that. The reason we have these commands is in verse 2, so that your children and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy a long life. The so what of this passage is so what, so that the faith will be passed on to your children, to their children, to their children, to their children. The faith that Moses is talking about is supposed to stick. It's not supposed to go away. And then in, in verse 4, this is where we get the word Shema. Shema literally means hear or listen. And so Moses says, Shema, or hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. First and foremost, 
Moses establishes something that in this world we often fail to do. The Lord is one. One God. Not a God of many. Not a God you can choose to believe in or not. But one God, one Lord, period. He says in verse 5, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Jesus echoes this passage when he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And he does this when he's questioned by the Pharisees, what is the greatest commandment? And it's interesting that a Pharisee would ask this because the Pharisees especially knew the Old Testament from forward to back, everything in between. They had it memorized. You would start quoting a verse in the middle of Habakkuk and they could finish it for you. It didn't matter. And so when this, when this kind of arrogant little Pharisee says, so Jesus, if you're this great teacher, what's the greatest commandment? I imagine as soon as Jesus said, Shema, the Pharisee hung his head knowing he had just asked the stupidest question. Because the most important command is to love the God, the one God, with everything that you have. And then Moses says, these commandments I give you today are to be on your hearts and press them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and your gates. Now, the Jewish people literally do this. They have these little boxes that have a little scroll in it that has, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. They have that written in Hebrew, and they keep a little boxes that they tie to their wrist. They tie to their forehead. They nail to the doorposts of their house because it was so important to them that they understood that this was the greatest commandment, the thing that they had to follow. And, and Moses says to impress it upon your children, to teach them when you're at home, when you're on the road. It's like the Israelites were busy, you know, and, and they didn't have time to sit down and have a Bible study every week because they were constantly moving, you know, taking their kids to soccer practice, a volleyball game in Grand Junction, maybe going to the store to buy the fifth pair of shoes this year. And so Moses says, talk about it constantly, no matter where you're at, just bring it up. Talk about how important it is to love the Lord your God with everything that you have. So what does it mean for us today? I said earlier that 40 to 50% of our young people are, are seen as leaving their faith after they graduate high school. What I didn't say is out of the 40 to 50% who leave, 30 to 60% return. So in some cases, more return than left. <laughs> Statistics are a little weird. <laughs> and I think mostly meaningless in some ways. We know that our young people are leaving the church and, and coming back eventually. And I'm not concerned whether they come back. I'm concerned about that 10, 15, 20-year gap that they are not following the Lord with everything they have. I'm concerned that the faith that we are teaching is not sticking with them. But I think rather than ask why are they leaving and then trying to fix all the bad things, why not ask a different question and say, what is keeping them? that other 50% that's staying, what is keeping them around and trying to reinforce the things that they're learning, the things that are going on well in their lives and their faith to help, this, to help the faith stick of all our young people. Kara, Kara Powell and uh, the Fuller Youth Institute um, has some of the most helpful research, some of the most helpful tools on this. They actually wrote the book on it. It's actually called Sticky Faith. And uh, she when they outlined the book, they said there are three things known to cause sticky faith. And we have the slides right here. 
Um, the three things known to cause sticky faith are a full understanding of the gospel, intergenerational worship, and parent partnership. There's no silver bullet, but if a kid has these three things, they are more likely to have sticky faith. So in terms of the full gospel, we have to ask ourselves, what gospel are we teaching? Moses says in verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. From, from pastors, from parents, from family members and friends, we're often guilty of misrepresenting the gospel. See, any, any management person will tell you that your system that you have is designed perfectly to yield the results that you're getting. So we know there's an issue here. We shouldn't be surprised at how our youth articulate the gospel, how they live out the faith. And the reality is, is most have forgotten. One author says that we have gospel amnesia. We've forgotten the story of our faith, the story of Christianity. And we've come up with all sorts of misconceptions. You see, youth typically, when they think about God, they view, him, they view God in, in kind of a moralistic, therapeutic, deist sort of way. Moralistic being God is all about doing more good things than bad, having good morals. Therapeutic, I go to God when I'm in trouble, when I need help. And the deist view of God is one that says God is like a, a clockmaker who makes a clock, winds it up, and then just sets it off and stands back at a distance. So our kids try to do enough right things to outweigh the bad. When they do bad things or need help, then they go to God. But the rest of the time, God is distant. It's not surprising that with this view that most of our teenagers have of God, that when something really terrible happens in their life, their first big trial outside of their house, they leave their faith. Because God doesn't help them as a therapeutic way. Or they, they, they're riddled with guilt because of this bad thing that they've done. Or simply because they view God as distant, they're alone. You see, I've had a number of conversations with young people where I ask them about a certain area of their life. They're, they're you know, telling me that they're, you know, they're doing all these things that we know the Bible says is wrong. They're telling me they may be sleeping with their girlfriend or they're doing drugs or into alcohol or any number of things. And I say, what do you think God thinks about that? And every time they say, well, I'm a pretty good person. I don't really think God cares that much. And that's a mistake we've made. We've forgotten the gospel. We've turned into a gospel of sin management, of doing enough good things to outweigh the bad. The Bible says we can never do that. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. We only are saved by Christ. And so what if we begin to take this understanding of the full gospel when Christ looks at his disciples in Mark chapter 8, he says, who do you say I am? And Peter responds, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the one that has come to take away the sins of the world. Earlier, you named all these things about Jesus. He's your savior. He's your friend. He's your comforter. All these things that Jesus is. No one said he's the one that makes me do right or wrong things. Jesus is an intimate person in our lives. And so Jesus says, if you really believe that I'm the Messiah, the Savior, then you will do these things. You will deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. So what if we move forward in this thought that we are both saved from sin and saved for the kingdom? We are both saved from this eternal existence without God 
to doing something now. You see, the kingdom of God is both now and not yet. We have this eternal reward of heaven that's coming for us. That's the not yet. But what about the now? What part of the kingdom now are we living? How are we denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following Christ? Our lives will look different. You've heard the story of the woman who was forgiven much, probably the woman that was caught in adultery. She comes to Jesus' feet, and with her tears and her hair, she begins to wash his feet. And then she breaks a jar of, of expensive perfume. This jar of expensive perfume was a year's wages. Imagine spending a year's wages on something, breaking it, and dumping it on Jesus' feet. The disciples ask, why would you waste something in this way? But before that even happens, Jesus has already said, those who lose their life, those who waste their lives for my sake and the sake of the gospel will save it. So our response is those who waste their lives for Jesus, who squander their talent on their church, on the kingdom of God, they will gain it. You talked about how exciting it is that you have all different generations at this church. This is the second part of Sticky Faith, the second most important thing. And we have a video to illustrate this point. We'll see if we can get it to work. I wasn't able to download it, so we'll throw it up on the internet. So at times, the church can be a lot like holidays, a lot like where we separate the kids, and we, we say it's for their benefit because they want it. But in reality, we're not teaching them the history, the traditions we have about holidays, the conversations that we share, the maturity. And we wonder why, when they come to the adult table or big church, they're bored. We haven't taken time to share our history, our stories with them. And it really is a type of sharing. You see, we're not, we're not saying that the youth should replace the adults in worship, but they, sh- they should partner together. Your worship team is a great example of that, having two young people up there experiencing, participating in the leading of worship together. That's the model we're looking for. We're looking for a group of people 
that are willing to partner alongside with the youth, to bring them alongside into the traditions that we all know and love so that they're ready for that when they leave. One of the things that you need to know is, is that the biggest thing they found in their research, in Sticky Faith research, is that we know that the mere presence of adults in a child's life isn't enough. There has to be a true interest from the adult to the child and an investment in the child's life. When adults, other than their parents, invest in the faith of kids, the kid's faith sticks better. But we also know that youth will rank their congregations in a distant last in terms of support groups, meaning there's a huge gap. One of the most important ways we make kids' faith stick is by caring adults coming alongside these kids, but for the most part, the kids don't feel like the adults are there for them. They rank them distant last as people they would go to for advice. We have to close this gap. One idea out there right now is a five-to-one mentoring system. In, in youth ministry and children's ministry, we have to have a certain number of adults for a certain number of kids. And usually this is some legal thing or a church bylaw thing that we have to, to do. Um, and usually it's a one-to-five or one-to-ten ratio. But we're saying, let's flip that around. And when our students graduate high school, let them name five people other than their parents that they would feel comfortable going to for advice about their faith, advice about life. Because when kids can name other caring adults that they are willing to go to about their faith, go to about life issues, their faith sticks. They need to know more than anything why the church is important to you. You said it's a family. It's a place of worship. It's a place where all generations can be. One day we'll all be together in heaven. They need to know that. They don't need to know that it's the right thing to do. They need to know why you love it so much. And saying it today doesn't count. The last thing is parent partnership. Moses finishes up in verse 7 saying, Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Parents matter most. See, parents often fail to realize how much influence they actually have in their youth's sticky face, faith. To be fair, this is probably due to the lack of enthusiasm that your child expresses about your involvement in it. One of the, one of the studies states that the best social predictor of what a teenager's religious life will look like is to ask what their parents' religious life look like. While grandparents, other relatives, mentors, and even youth ministers may be influential, parents are most important in forming their children's spirituality. The study also states, teenagers do not seem very reflective or appreciative of this fact. So they're not going to tell you, but it's true. Parents need to be encouraged that their influence does, in fact, matter, and it matters most. And I can prove this with a little bit of math. And if it's too early for you for math, or you're just not a math person, I brought pictures. <laughs> this first graph represents the average church. The average church only has about 40 hours in a given year to influence a life. Those are what those dots mean. Whether it's a youth group or 
uh, a retreat or any number of things, students are usually only in a youth pastor's presence for about 40 hours in a given year. On the other hand, parents have over 3,000 hours a year to influence a life. By sheer volume alone, parents have the most influence. It's a given fact. You can't deny it. It's science. So regardless of how you feel, regardless of what your kids say about your involvement, know that your involvement does matter. But I wonder if your children know why you believe what you believe. I guarantee, I guarantee they know what. See, oftentimes you think, my kids, they won't listen to me. Well, I would challenge you to do a test. Ask them what, what they think you believe about something. I guarantee they can tell you. I guarantee they can tell you that you think this is wrong or that's wrong or that they should do that or when they get older, they should be like this. They can tell you. You've told them. They have listened. But do you know what they believe about it? So after you ask that, I'd encourage you to turn the question around and say, what do you believe about that? And then bite your tongue and just listen. It'll be hard. It might bleed. You know, my dad always says that if his, if his generation was Gen X, then my generation must be Gen Y because I'm always asking, why? Mow the lawn, why? Clean your room, why? Get a job, why? Right? Why do I have to do all this stuff? And knowing why we do what we do is important. And that's why Moses says it's so important that you teach these things to your children so that they know why. Joshua after Moses wrote about the why. When they are crossing the Jordan River with the ark, he had 12 stones set up to signify the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is what he said about it. This is to serve as a sign among you in the future when your children ask, what do these stones mean? Why did we do this? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the ark, the covenant of the Lord, when it crossed the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial of the people of Israel forever. In other words, when your children ask why, you have something to point to. If you've ever hiked a lot or you've, you've climbed mountains before, you, you've learned that there's this thing called cairns, and I have a picture of them. So a cairn marks the trail. And typically, if you stand next to one cairn, you can only see the very next one, and they mark the trail all the way up the mountain. Sometimes you get to the top, and there's a huge cairn built up there. And as you look back, you can see all the Karens that have led you up there. We always say hindsight is twenty twenty. Right? These Karens serve as a map to get to your final destination, but also serve as to show you where you've come from, the struggles that you've come from. These Karens are important in our lives, in the life of faith. When, when the Israelites set up these 12 stones, it was just so that they could tell their children, we came out of slavery from Egypt. God freed us. It was so they would have something to point to. So I wonder if your kids know why you believe Jesus is your Savior. Why you believe that Jesus is your friend. Because I guarantee they know the what. My last church, I had a parent volunteer and I was frustrated. And I said, 
Why do we continue to tell our kids the same thing over and over again if they're not going to listen to us? And she gave me a profound answer. She said, Randy, because when they're older, we can say, I told you so. <laughs> and my, my mom's here today, and if you want, you can ask her how many times in the last year I've called and had to say, you're right, I should have listened to you, I'm sorry. And she says, I told you so. It's hard. And I'm not saying it's easy, but you do have to do it. You know, when, when kids are young, it's a little easier to gather them around for a family devotion. Take advantage of that. As long as your kids are excited about coming together and studying the Bible as a family, take advantage of that. And then when they hit about seventh grade and stop being as excited about it, make it spontaneous. Planned spontaneity. As you're going to the soccer field, ask them a question. After the service on Sundays, say, what do you think about what Guy said about this? Or maybe at a certain point in, in a movie or a TV show, you can pause or, or click mute and say, what did you think about that comment? See, the kids are hearing all these voices and messages from outside of the world. Because we have them for 40 hours, you have them for 3,000 hours, and the rest is everybody else. And so it's important. They don't even have to know they're having a devotion. You can just ask them questions. And I would encourage you to do that. Because in the Shema, in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, Moses says to love the Lord with all your heart. Talk about it when you're at home and away, when you lie down, when you rise. Talk about it constantly. Now, you may not have realized it, but this entire time I've been bombarding you, bombarding you with one subliminal message. It's one simple truth that I hope you'll take away today, and that is to think orange. Reggie Joyner wrote a book called Think Orange, and it's a great book. And this is what he says. He says, the church does a good job being a light. The church does a good job being that city on a hill, guiding people. And so let's call them yellow. But the family does the best job of loving, of nurturing, of being together. Let's call them red. And when you combine these two colors together, these two most important parts of your child's faith, the church as the light and the family as love, you get orange. The partnership between the church and the family is the most important partnership that we have. It's the way that we are going to get the faith of our young people to stick. So I'd encourage you to think orange. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for the opportunity to be here and to speak your words today. I pray that as we go, you would bring to mind ways that we can think orange, that we can partner with, with the church and with families. Lord, that you'd bring to mind the, the, the spontaneous times where we can ask questions of our children. Lord, that you would raise up adults in this very room who want to be mentors for the youth here. Lord, I pray over Applewood that in the name of Christ, you would raise a five-to-one mentoring system up where adults in this room would truly care and want to invest in the lives and the faith of the kids. And, Lord, that the kids would be receptive and excited that they are going to be able to buck a statistic and have their faith stick after high school. Lord, we give you this time. And as we continue to worship, 
We just pray that you would accept it as a sacrifice of praise to you. Pray these things in your name. Amen.